Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on October 26th, 2022. Today's episode of Macro Markets is number 24 of our biweekly podcast and marks our first full year of production. And boy, what a year it has been for investors from both a macro and a markets perspective. 12 months ago, the Fed funds rate still stood at the zero bound with a range of zero to 25 basis points. The two-year treasury yielded about half a percent and the 10-year treasury yielded about one and a half percent. So the yield curve back then was nicely positively sloped. The unemployment rate was 4.6% and headline CPI was a little over 5%, with most analysts chalking it up to transient supply chain disruptions. I don't need to remind everyone how different things are today, but it has been, arguably, the most dramatic and swift sea change in market conditions that anyone working today has seen in their careers. As we sometimes say in our firm, when conditions are changing this quickly, the time between getting an investment idea and executing on that idea gets shorter and shorter. So we hope macro markets has been helpful in that regard. Now, the next 12 months will likely be just as eventful. And while we wait for the next meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee on November 2nd, the results of the midterm election on November 8th, and the next round of top-tier economic data, we are very lucky to have with us today Maria Giraldo who will help us make sense of what this all means for investors. Maria, an investment strategist and managing director in our macroeconomic and investment research group, has been with Guggenheim Investments for nine and a half years and is the primary architect of the firm's credit outlook and investment themes. In her capacity as investment strategist, she works closely with the sector teams and the portfolio managers. Now, after our chat with Maria, we will answer a listener's question on relative value that was addressed to Steve Brown, Chief Investment Officer for Total Return and Macro Strategies, and our guest on Episode 23 of Macro Markets. But before we chat with Maria, we will begin with a brief call-in from Jerry Tsai, an economist in the Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group, who will set the stage with a quick update on the latest macro data. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks, Jake. Last week, we got more bad news from the housing market. The National Association of Home Builder Housing Market Index declined again in October, falling well below consensus expectations. Housing starts decreased more than expected in September, and the decline in existing home sales continued. The imbalance between housing supply and demand remained severe, but improved slightly, with the median sales price increasing 0.8% month over month, and the month's supply of existing homes available for sale remained at a depressed level. The Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index decreased less than expected in October and remained in contractionary territory. The underlying composition was mixed as the new orders and employment components increased, but shipments decreased. Overseas, German investor sentiment was less pessimistic than expected in October. Price breaks for gas and electricity helped stabilize sentiment but the fact that investors' economic outlook deteriorated again suggests a high risk of a recession in the coming months. In the UK, CPI inflation hit 10.1% in September, matching the 40-year high reached in July. 
a big jump in food prices pushed inflation back to double digit, dealing a new blow for households grappling with the cost of living crisis. And the change of prime minister may delay the delivery of the UK's debt cutting plan, which could impact the BOE's rate decision on November third. In China, authorities delayed the release of Q3 GDP without providing an explanation, while the media reported that this could be due to a technical glitch in the administrative process. We believe the delay indicates that Q3 numbers are ugly, and officials wanted to avoid publishing this sensitive piece of information. During the all-important party congress, judging from high-frequency indicators, we think the housing sector downturn and the zero-COVID policy are still weighing on economic activity. Still, there are some tentative signs of stabilization in home sales in October, and officials are debating easing COVID curbs, which, if implemented, would support consumer spending in the coming months. Lastly, on the energy market. The European benchmark natural gas prices sold off last week, breaking below the 200-day moving average and down almost 70% from the August peak. Better than expected gas storage levels, the EU's new measures to curb natural gas prices, and emerging signs of an unusually warm winter contributed to the recent sell-off. With limited pipeline and LNG regasification capacity in Europe, obstacles to refill gas storage remain. A cold winter in Northeast Asia would exacerbate the challenge. So before the heating season starts, European natural gas will likely trade range-bound with risks due to the downside, and as the winter comes, prices may spike up again. The pace of inventory draws in Europe after November will be critical to watch. That's all I have. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Jerry Tsai. And now I want to welcome back to Macro Markets Maria Giraldo. Investment strategist in our macroeconomic and investment research group. Maria, thanks for waiting and thanks for being here today. Thanks, Jay. It's always a pleasure to be here. Let's begin by having you set the stage for us on credit markets. What's performance been like this year? Where are corporate bond yields, and how does it compare to history? Sure. Yeah. So,、um, you know, returns have been very negative in the fixed. Income landscape, broadly speaking,、um, you, you look at treasuries, you look at corporate bonds. It's been the worst performance in history, and some of that history dates back even to the 1970s, a period, you know, where we similarly had、um, high inflation concerns and a Federal Reserve tightening monetary policy. And the performance this year rivals even the returns from the 1970s. So, you look at high yield. That's down 14 percent. You look at investment grade; it's down 21 percent. Treasuries are down 15 percent. So, what's been, I think, especially painful this year is that both risk assets and safe havens have sold off. It's been a positive correlation environment where nothing has worked. Diversification hasn't provided that cushion that you know we would normally rely on. Um, and have over the past thirty to forty years. So, for a lot of investors, you know, fixed income, but e- even other sectors in equities, etc.,、um, you know, this has been a bit jarring. And I sense that many investors are sort of at a standstill, just waiting for an attractive entry point. But you know, as a as an active manager, we can't just stand still. We have to continuously evaluate the environment. So, you know, we're looking at these yields. So, where are IG yields? You mentioned, you know, we're looking at six point one percent 
investment-grade corporate bond yields that are the highest they've been since 2009. Um, and we look at high-yield uh, corporate bond yields at 10%. There have been very, very short periods where yields are that high for high-yield, but they generally haven't coincided with liquidity where you can actually add to portfolios at 10% high-yield levels. Um, you look at loans, which, by the way, are only down about 3 to 4%, and they're yielding 11%. So we're evaluating the landscape right now as, as having a very attractive entry point. Um, but we, you know, especially for, for investors who maybe are have some cash sitting on the sideline, have a little bit of extra liquidity. But I think it's also important to just acknowledge how we got here. Um, you know, it, it's been a very painful experience for those that were fully invested at the end of 2021 with with strong prospects for the U.S. economy. Um, you know, it's it's a risk that we had outlined in a previous report in a core conundrum, uh, one in which if you're taking extra risks, you're probably going down in quality and there's a risk of spread widening uh, or you're lengthening duration and there's a risk of a rate backup. We couldn't have predicted that the two would coincide uh, at the same time in the same environment to get us here. But but here we are. The opportunity has reset. Yields are much more attracted. Forward looking returns for fixed income is much, much more attractive and I think we kind of have to look forward now. Right, we can find the core conundrum publication on our website if anyone's interested. Now, Maria, treasury yields are also much higher now. Uh, so how does compensation in credit markets compare to bonds that investors tend to refer to as risk-free? And how have credit spreads uh, changed this year? And where are they now? Yeah, treasury yields are a lot higher. Uh, as of this recording, the 10-year treasury yield is somewhere around 4 to 4.1%, which is, again, the highest it's been since 2007. So a lot of investors are sort of evaluating the relative opportunity between corporate bonds, which carry default risk, credit risk, and, and downward rating migration risk, or do, do you just go to treasuries, um, uh, which, as you point out, many consider risk-free, even though clearly they carry a lot of duration risk. Um, so, you know, we, looking at the relative opportunity, we'll, we'll refer to spreads, credit spreads. So that's the yield that a corporate bond will pay you over uh, similar uh, maturity treasuries. So a five-year corporate bond versus a five-year treasury, just looking at a, at a light comparison. And spreads have widened. Um, corporate bonds are yielding now uh, you know, much more than they were in 2021 relative to treasuries. Investment-grade corporate bonds are yielding you about 1.5 percentage points. We refer to that as 150 basis points more. Um, Investment-grade uh, yields um, pay you 150 basis point spreads. Um, in high yield, the spread is 500 basis points. So you can get five percentage points more in yield in high-yield credit than you do for a similar maturity treasury. Um, spreads have widened. That's to reflect credit risk, which has increased as the Fed is intent on slowing the economy. Less liquidity, because the, the Fed is now in a process of quantitative tightening. They're no longer buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities in large volumes like they were uh, last year. Uh, and in 2020. And there's just more uncertainty. There's not a lot of confidence around where inflation is going to go. And it's clearly continued to surprise to the upside. And all of that is captured in the credit spread. Uh, you know, as a fixed income manager, we look at 
spreads across more than just the corporate credit sector. Uh, we look at um, structured credit sectors, RMBS, CMBS, CLOs. We look at munis. And we really need to understand 150 basis points in investment grade spreads. What does that mean relative to history? How does that compare to other sectors? If 500 basis points in high yield, is there a risk that spreads can widen more or will they tighten from here? How, you know, how does that look relative to the historical average? So you know, we have a dashboard that tracks spreads across all of these sectors. Everywhere we can get index data, we can get um, data from our internal trading desks, and we turn those levels into percentiles. How, what's the percentile relative to history? So for investment grade, 150 basis point spread represents roughly the 70th percentile of historical observations, which means that spreads have been tighter than 150 basis points in investment grade 70% of the time. Uh, the, that said another way, the odds are in your favor that they're more likely to tighten over time than they are to widen further. And in order to get the most information from our dashboard, we turn those percentiles into a sort of color map or a heat map. And that heat map is absolutely flashing green currently. When we compare our heat map to other, other times in history, it looks a lot like the, the lows of 2020. It looks a lot like the lows of 2016, 2011. These are periods that were generally characterized by a risk-off backdrop that ultimately came back. We saw spreads come back. Um, we saw the environment, the backdrop all improve. And those were very attractive entry points for us as a manager looking back historically. So, um, you know, that's that's where we stand now. And the dashboard has been just very crucial in making sure that we remain sort of ob ob objective on the entry points and the attractiveness of the credit sector. So just to be clear, though, Maria, if your, if your credit dashboard is flashing green, that's not a buy signal. It's just saying that the spreads are near the historical wise within a certain percentage point. That's absolutely correct. And it's only one input into a variety of different inputs that we have, both quantitative analysis that we run, other models, other signals, but then a big overlay is our qualitative analysis as well, our outlook on the U.S. economy, on, on corporate fundamentals, um, and, and relative positioning. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a little bit later about whether or not you're actually getting paid with those spreads for the risks that you're taking in today's market. But first, I want to ask you, how have you observed this year's volatility and the rise in market yields affecting corporations as borrowers? Has there been any operational change in the profile of borrowers raising debt right now? Yes, it's been a big impact to um, new borrowings, new issue borrowings, the primary market activity. We've just seen a very, very big slowdown. And in corporate credit, in, in broadly, uh, new issuance is running about 70% of the pace that it was last year. So a lot of borrowers have are really pausing to think, is this the right environment to take on more debt? It's, it's definitely affected corporate plans for expansion and for growth and for additional capital expenditure. And that's eventually going to flow through to the economy because those that type of activity is measured through things like business investment, which is a direct line that goes into GDP. Uh, we're not seeing borrowing in the very low quality sort of 
split B, triple C's, or any triple C issuance really since July in the high yield corporate credit market. And do you think that companies need cash right now or do the balance sheets have cash on them? That great question. I don't think that they really need the cash right now. I think a lot of the uh, additional borrowing is to some extent for conservative strategies, but we find that um, many companies in particular in high yield are still operating with excess cash balances um, relative to where they were pre-COVID. So we like to look at cash balances relative to total debt outstanding, for example. And in the high yield space, the median ratio is about 12 to 15% roughly of cash to total debt. And pre-COVID, they would have been more like 8 to 9% cash to total debt. So that tells you that if we get into a more adverse economic scenario, they have enough liquidity to survive you know, a, a, a few quarters of negative free cash flow or pullback in corporate earnings. And we call that a pretty long runway. Generally, we're looking at four to five quarters of liquidity runway for um, high yield borrowers. But but I do want to emphasize, too, that there's growing dispersion around that. Yeah. Just explain what you mean by dispersion, Maria. Mm-hmm. Dispersion, meaning that there are some borrowers that already are pulling down a lot of that cash and where maybe during COVID, they would have built up cash buffers equal to 20% of cash to debt. They're now using it for a number of reasons. Maybe supply chain issues caused their costs to spike and their margins to compress. And so they've had to use some of that excess cash already, giving shortening up their, their runway for the next several quarters. And so we're seeing more sort of a distance between the the stronger credits and the weaker credits. And as we go through the cycle, that distance is going to grow even more to the point of differentiating the survivors from ultimate defaulters. So the demand for or appetite for bringing on new debt by corporations is kind of like a canary in the coal mine about what they feel about the economy going forward, maybe some uncertainty about that. Um, it might even bode poorly for growth. Um, so are you seeing some of that coming to fruition in corporate earnings right now as well? Yeah, I like the, I like the idea of the canary in a coal mine. I definitely think that looking back at previous cycles, new issuance activities, sort of the first thing that takes a hit and everything else follows in corporate earnings tends to be one of those um, factors that follow. Um, in in terms of what we're seeing there, it's really a broad mix of different themes that are playing out um, in corporate earnings. I think, again, this speaks to this growing dispersion theme. Um, profits in aggregate are still strong. We, we tend to track the S&P 500 because there's more public uh, data available and it represents a pretty large swath of the U.S. economy. Um, with you know nominal GDPs growing nine percent year over year, so that has to some extent supported um, revenues and profits. But we've also seen a big shift away from good sectors over to commodity sectors. So what the good sector has been losing, it's been getting gained uh, in the oil and gas space. So um, energy, corporate earnings so far are still holding on strong. Tech is an interesting one um, because. They're actually already in an earnings recession, and I'm not sure how many people recognize that. Tech earnings per share 
peaked in Q4 of 2021, and now it's been down for two consecutive quarters and tracking now for the third quarter also negative. So yeah, there's some signs in, in corporate earnings results that suggest that we are already in, in a sort of recession. Um, thin margin industries like retail continue to struggle with rising costs, labor issues, too much inventory. Uh, banks are also um, in a bit of a recession. They have fewer tailwinds um, right now with uh, having, one, a lot less banking activity in general, a lot less new issue uh, debt activity, M&A activity. So that's a big uh, headwind. Uh, but they also had this sort of tailwind in 2020 where they overestimated the number of losses they could have in their portfolios. They were able to sort of uh, gain those provisions back, and it was a huge tailwind um, for earnings last year. So that's gone. I think the the key takeaway is that it really you have to pick the industry and then look under the hood to understand what are the themes that are playing out. Some are already in recession on an earnings recession. Others are benefiting what uh, you know from the losses of a different sector, like the oil and gas is benefiting. Um, but then even within the industries, you have to look even further under the hood because then it depends on pricing power, it depends on scale, geographic exposures. You know, do you have did you have exposure to Russia and Ukraine and Europe now? So a lot, a lot of different things that are playing out uh, in in a corporate earnings space. So um, it sounds like there could be some industries that um, are already perhaps in a recession, uh, while others, you know, are maybe a couple of months or quarters behind that. But does it get worse or better from here? Uh, unfortunately, I think it gets a little bit worse because the Fed is intent on raising interest rates, quashing inflation, and they, they're really willing to do this at the expense of economic growth. Uh, they, you know, they, they have communicated that they are willing to cause a recession if it means that we get inflation under control. Um, and so, you know, moving from 0% interest rates to potentially the highest rates we've seen since 2007 is going to cause some damage. There's still impacts that we haven't seen flow through completely, like in the loan market where borrowers pay on short-term interest rates plus a spread, those short-term interest rates for them, um, just technically based on how they reset their coupons, it hasn't flowed through yet. Uh, and But it's going to start in the third quarter and it's going to get um, much worse as, as the Fed raises interest rates. Um, I do want to also balance some of the views and some of the things that we're seeing in the corporate credit fundamentals, because it's not all negative. Um, you know, one thing that we do see pretty consistently across a number of different sectors is that because borrowers took advantage of the opportunity to lower their interest costs in 2020 and in 2021, their interest coverage, their ability to generate cash flow to cover annual interest expense is the healthiest we've really ever seen it. Um, in, in high yield, it's it's a multiple of more than five times that they're generating cash flow to cover interest expense. Similarly, in bank loans, um, an investment grade, that's never really a concern uh, because the investment grade market tends to generate 10, 12 times the cash flows to interest expense. But even there, it's still relatively healthy. So. There's some positives to it that we're seeing in fundamentals that keep us very constructive on the sector. 
So we started talking about kind of what spreads and yields are available in the market. We talked a little bit about kind of where the credit uh, fundamentals are um, very broadly uh, across uh, the financial markets. So let's try and put it together. What does it mean? What does all this mean for credit investors and the credit backdrop? And do you think that spreads and yields are compensating investors for the risks that they're taking? Yes, I I really do. I, you know, I think what it means in terms of what does the next six to 12 months look like? Um, well, I think we're moving into a more challenging credit backdrop. We're going to see more defaults. We're already starting to see that, you know, the, the last year in 2021, defaults rates were near zero. There was no companies defaulting. And this year, now we're tracking about 1% of the market. So it's still very, very small, but it's moving in the direction that's higher. So I think that that momentum continues into next year. We're going to see um, maybe about a 3% default rate in the high yield market. I think the reason why, despite that, you know, moving into a more challenging environment, why I think spreads compensate is because credit spreads, um, historically, in order to compensate for, say, a 1% default rate, uh, because of where you have recovery rates. So if 1% of the market defaults, you can still recover about 45% of those credits that default. You really don't need a lot of spread in order to break even on that def- on those default situations. Something like in investment grade, where you tend to see less than 1% default rate, you really shouldn't be at- requiring more than 80 to 100 basis points in investment grade yields over treasuries. So that's it. That's 80 to 100 basis points in spreads. You really don't need much more than that to break even uh, against treasury investments. But you're getting more than twice that um, in some cases. Now, let's think about also kind of a through a cycle perspective. In a triple B corporate bond, for example, on average has about 10 years maturity. An average triple B corporate bond is trading at 84 cents on the dollar. Now, since 1981, the cumulative default probability for a triple B bond over a 10-year period is just 4%. Said another way, there is a 96% probability that a bond that's trading at 84 cents on the dollar will eventually mature at par. So I just feel that in many sectors in in the corporate credit space, and especially the higher quality you go, the odds are so much in your favor. Ninety-six percent chance that you that an investor buys an eighty-four, you know, uh, cents on a dollar bond and it's going to return to you one hundred percent. It just seems like really, really great odds without even knowing anything else. Obviously, we're overlaying in there our economic and our credit outlook, uh, but it just seems very attractive and it it seems that there's much more compensation in credit markets right now than than you really require. So that's investment grade. Um, how do you think about the opportunity in high yield, given this, this this set of conditions? We tend to think it of it similarly. Obviously, the the risks there are higher, and the probabilities of maturing at par are lower. Um, for example, a double B rated company, which is also trading at a discount, largely because of where rates are. But they, but we, we're trying to think about this from a pure credit perspective. If you their double B rated corporate debt is trading at around 86 cents on the dollar, 
And the average probability that that double B bond will default over a three-year time frame is 4%. Average that it'll default over five years is 8%. And then over 10 years is 12%. So, so clearly, your risk is higher. That's exactly what the credit rating is reflecting. But the odds, I think, are still very much in your favor. And given where spreads are, you know, obviously, the, the, the bond itself is trading at a big discount. But just given where spreads are, we, we just feel like we're going to be moving into a much more challenging credit backdrop, but it, it's still a preferred playing field for credit managers because over a longer period of time, it just comes back to rolling up your sleeves, really diving into credit work, pricing out, picking picking out those winners from, from the losers. So there's a decent amount of cushion built into credit markets via just where spreads are, where yields are, the, the fact that you're buying these bonds at a discount tell us that there's a good amount of spread. Uh, the other the other way to think about the, the 86 cents on the dollar is in how much it limits your downside versus if you had been buying in 2021. So an average recovery rate, I mentioned this, you know, for, for a high yield bond, if it defaults, you can recover about 45 percent of your value. And that's through however the restructuring ends up working out, whether it's a bankruptcy or or other, other forms of restructuring generally, eventually the assets will secure some portion of that bond. So you recover about 45% of par. Um, if you buy that, if you bought that bond at 107 last year, which is where double Bs were trading, you had a lot of downside. You were buying it at a premium to, to par, and then your recovery was going to be significantly less. Now you're buying it at 86 cents on the dollar, which means that just naturally through interest rates, the bonds have built an additional 20 percentage points of cushion um, you know if in the event that that bond does default so it just it's just limiting your downside and how are you seeing uh, the range of high yield bonds and where they're trading relative to par I know that uh, 80 is kind of like the demarcation line for distress yes um, it, it, when we're when we're looking at 80 cents on the dollar so the problem with with that is that there's not really a lot of natural buyers often in that space. So you either have um, relative value players, you have institutional managers as ourselves who are looking at 80 cents on the dollar and we like it, but once it goes to 60, uh, 50 cents on the dollar, and that has happened in periods of severe dislocation, like in, like in COVID or during the global financial crisis, there is, really isn't somebody to naturally step in. So once you get to that level, you're looking at distressed buyers who are just buying it so that they can take advantage of the bankruptcy proceedings and try to get as much as possible. Um, so we're looking at it very closely because the driver of the price discounts right now are very different from when they were in 2020. It's not because credit spreads are really wide and and you know and investors are worried about taking too much risk. It's really because of where interest rates are. But the implications from our perspective relative to you know, a, a default situation are ultimately the same. And the way we're seeing it now is because of where those prices are um, you know, at a discount, the opportunity for us to kind of step in and really drive uh, the ultimate resolution, whether it's that the com company gets in trouble or not, um, it's it's just much more rewarding in in you know in given where where those values are. Say let, let me let me give you an uh, an example. 
Um, you can right now buy a double B bond, as I mentioned, somewhere around 80 cents of the dollar. There's some single B bonds too that are trading even cheaper. If that company gets in trouble, just given where the economic conditions are, where credit conditions are, lenders right now have a bit of an upper hand to step in and renegotiate that bond with the borrower, maybe give them a little bit more breathing room, uh, uh, allow them to extend that maturity in exchange for maybe a higher position on a capital structure, um, maybe more covenants, just something that's going to secure your position even more. We're already seeing that happen in, in the credit market. So again, if you bought that bond at 85 cents on the dollar and now you're you have the upper hand as a lender, it's just much more valuable to be a very active manager in a discounted corporate bond space. You were just talking about um, relative value by rating. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, relative value by industry. Are you seeing some industries where you might not be uh, getting compensated for the risk or, or versus some where you think you really are? Industry-wise, we're seeing some trends, but nothing too kind of broad common theme. So for example, one area that our portfolio managers have recently highlighted is in healthcare services, um, where costs have gone up, labor is really challenging, um, but they don't have the ability to raise prices because a lot of their price setting mechanisms are often sort of benchmarked to some sort of uh, index or like or, or government related index. So they're sort of, they're stuck. Um, they can't raise those prices, but their costs have gone up, and um, there's been some some trouble in that credit space. Um, it's not a huge concentration in credit like energy was in in 2015, but I, I think it it's a perfect example of how idiosyncratic the stresses are. Um, I also you know we we, we think about. We're big students of history and we like to look at what's happened in previous recessions. And we find that sectors that tend to get in trouble in recessions are media, leisure, travel, entertainment. You know, those, so, so it's helpful to keep this in mind because those are sectors that were also really hurt during the pandemic and in, are only in a recovery phase. So if we enter a recession pretty soon that kind of that sort of cuts the runway for them to continue to improve those fundamentals and we're really mindful of that um, but there's not any specific sector right now that's getting in trouble where there's a big concentration or posing any sort of financial stability risk and that's going to be pretty different from the last several default cycles that we've lived through where it's either concentrated in tech or concentrated in real estate or concentrated in energy, just very unlike um, recent default cycles. And I think part of the reason for that is because the driver of the stress is interest rates. It's higher interest rates is the Fed tightening monetary policy. And so interest rates really are, are indiscriminate. There are some interest rate sensitive sectors like housing, but but you still will see stresses across a, a broad array of industries. And so that's how we're really thinking about the themes um, in credit over the next 12 months. And on the flip side, what industries have tended to perform better or seem less cyclically sensitive during a recession? Interestingly, it's usually been tech, um, consumer staples, 
banks, especially post-global financial crisis, just have, have built these really strong balance sheets as a result of all the regulatory developments post-GFC. So um, that's where we will tend to see a lot less sort of cyclical sensitivity and volatility in earnings. Obviously, many are reluctant to jump into tech right now because of how punishing higher interest rates have been already. But just from a fundamental perspective in a recession, tech earnings perform more defensively than in other sectors like consumer discretionary or even industrials. Well, thank you, Maria. This has been a very illuminating uh, and timely uh, discussion today. Uh, before I let you go, um, do you have any final takeaways for our listeners? Yeah, I, th- I think the takeaway here is that in credit, you're already getting paid for risk through a cycle. Um, at the core of long-term investing, and we are long-term investors, is making sure that your risk and reward are appropriately balanced and I think it's tilted a little more favorably to reward right now. So after a really tumultuous year, it's made investors feel very uneasy, very unsteady. The best approach is to lean on the support that fundamental analysis can provide and leg back in gradually. Well, thank you for that, Maria. And thank you again for taking the time to visit with us today. And I hope you come back again soon. Thanks, Jay. Now, before we go, we want to dip into our macro markets mailbag. Melissa from Boston has emailed a question for Steve Brown, Chief Investment Officer for Total Return and Macro Strategies and guest on episode 23 of our podcast. Melissa writes, Steve, there were two fixed income sectors that you didn't mention on your podcast, municipal bonds and preferreds. What is your thought on relative value for these sectors? Here is Steve's answer. Like other longer duration sectors, Both municipal bonds and bond-like preferred equity securities have had their year-to-date total returns driven by duration. Tax-exempt munis look fairly valued relative to treasuries, but offer high relative yields. Spreads in taxable munis look fair versus investment-grade corporate credit, and yields are the highest since 2010 and 2011. Fundamentals for muni issuers generally still look strong. In preferreds, we like U.S. bank preferreds. The discounted dollar prices offer potentially attractive total return opportunities and high yields and interest rate carry while you wait. U.S. banks remain well capitalized, and we think they are well positioned to weather potential economic storms. Well, thanks, Steve, for your answer, and thanks to our listener, Melissa, for sending us the question. If any of you have a question for today's guest or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we will do our best to answer them either on the air on a future episode or offline. Now my thanks once again to Maria Giraldo and Jerry Tsai and thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. I'm Jay Diamond and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. 
Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.